If you have your Bibles, open them with me to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. Now, Jeremiah is not a minor prophet. He's a major prophet. That means he was longer-winded than the minor prophets. Jeremiah lived in the early part of the 500s B.C., early 6th century. The northern kingdom of Israel had already been invaded and had been gone over 120 years. All that was left was the southern kingdom of Israel, which was called Judah, made up of two of the 12 original tribes. Judah was all there was. The capital of Judah was Jerusalem. And in uh, the uh, late 600s, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came down and invaded Jerusalem, but did not destroy it, but took away many people from Jerusalem, many of the citizens of Jerusalem, into Babylon, into captivity. He came back again uh, ten years later, did the same thing. He came back again in 588 B.C., and this time he stayed. And he surrounded the city, and he wouldn't let anybody go in. That is, no food, no water, no nothing going into Jerusalem for two years, and wouldn't let anybody go out. He starved the people out. At the end of two years, in 586, he went into Jerusalem. He beat down the people who were already almost starved to death. He destroyed the temple. He tore down the walls of Jerusalem, leveled the city, took the the ablest of the people, the most influential people, and carried them into Babylon for 70 years. It was during that time that Jeremiah was the prophet that the people heard from. He was the voice of God. He wasn't the only one. There were other prophets along uh, in that area at the same time, prophets like uh, uh, Ezekiel, uh, Habakkuk, and some others. But Jeremiah was the one in Jerusalem. He was the one who kept telling the people the voice of God. In chapter 31, he tells us something that I find rather surprising. It's a chapter in which God says to the people, I'm going to change what I've been doing. I'm no longer going to do what I was doing. I'm going to do something new. The title of this message is The New Deal. The New Deal. Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning with verse 27. The days are coming, declares the Lord when I will plant the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the offspring of men and of animals, just as I have watched over them to uproot and tear down and to overthrow, destroy and bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days, people will no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, Everyone will die for his own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on edge. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. 
No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. I am a, uh, an unofficial student of popular music. Now that can be good, it can be bad, but one of the musicians, one of the artists that I really like is a fellow who's been around, at least on the music scene, for about 20 years. His name is Bruce Hornsby. I like Bruce Hornsby. He has a smooth voice. And his music, his, his uh, songs are, are smooth. He writes about poor people in desperate situations and their need for a turnaround, a change of some sort. He wrote some songs like The Way It Is, talking about people in a welfare land, line and other people making fun of them. In that particular song, there's a lady who's in the welfare line and another a man comes up and looks at her and says, get a job. And Bruce Hornsby said, that's just the way it is. That's just the way it is. But don't you believe him. He wrote another song called Mandolin Rain. It was about a fall festival. This is a good time to be thinking about uh, Mandolin Rain because it talks about being out on the fairgrounds under the common tent and what country folks uh, do in their fellowship and their socializing under a common tent. But there was another song that he wrote. It wasn't as popular. It didn't quite have the catchy tune to it that the first two hits did, but it was a song called Gonna Be Some Changes Made. And the lyrics to that song go something like this. Gonna be some changes made, changes made. Can't keep doing what I've been doing these days. Look in the mirror, I see a clown's face. Gotta take it off, gotta get myself straight. Gonna be some changes made, some changes made. Can't keep doing what I've been doing these days. Better figure out something, things are looking grave. Gonna be some changes made, changes made. Jeremiah chapter 31 is about the need for change. And about the fact that God was telling the people of that day who were in desperate straits, thought that all hope was lost, he was telling them, God is going to do something new. God is going to make the change. Now, I realize that I'm already at a disadvantage this evening preaching about change. You talk about people not liking sermons on giving, I think they would take a whole series of giving sermons instead of one sermon on change. At least that's been my experience. Change? Please don't ask me to change. And yet, change is what God is constantly asking His people to do. Change is what God is constantly asking His people to allow Him to do. If you had to make big changes in your life today in order to avoid death tomorrow, would you do it? Could you do it? Did you know that statistics tell us that there's a nine to one probability you would not do it? You would not make a change even if that change would allow you to avoid an imminent death? The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. It'll be something different. It's change. Imagine that your doctor calls you up one day and he says these words. Well, Blake Watson, I have good news and some bad news. Or Chris Beatty, I have some good news and some bad news. Alicia Moore, I have some good news and some bad news. The bad news is you will die within a month. The good news is that if you significantly change your lifestyle right now and for the next month and beyond, instead of dying within a month, you will live a long and happy life. Now to all of us, if you got from your doctor that telephone call or that uh, conversation in the doctor's office, could you make the change that he tells you is necessary? Could you turn on a dime and go another direction in your life? After all, this is a real choice that many people face from day to day. So you'd think that the odds would be fairly high, especially if you were told that if you don't change, you're going to die. You'd think that the, the chances would be pretty high that most everybody would make the changes. So it sounds like a no-brainer. Well, sure, I'll change, Blake Watson says. Well, absolutely, I'll change, Chris Beatty says. Alicia Moore says, just tell me what I need to do. Yes, I'll change. But you probably won't change. In fact, if you got this phone call in which you were told change or die, the odds statistically are nine to one that you would not change. Not that you could not, you would not. Of course, you'll say, well, yes, I'll change. I would change, Jimmy. I'm not that, uh, I'm not the, 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 the nine. I'm the one. I absolutely would change. And you might for a little while. You'll start out. You'll, you'll begin to make some of those changes in your lifestyle. Maybe some changes in your eating habits. Maybe some changes in your exercise or your recreational pursuits and so on. But it won't be long before your enthusiasm tapers off and soon you're back to square one. No change and no chance. Let me give you a case in point. I don't know how many people on a given day in America either have a heart attack or have heart bypass surgery. We all know of people, most of us have people in our families who have had uh, either a heart attack or heart bypass surgery. It's very common, most definitely a life and death matter. People who have had heart bypass surgery are directed by their doctors to change their eating habits, to stop smoking if they smoke, to start exercising if they don't, and most of us don't, to significantly alter their lifestyle. They know they should make the changes. They know that they'll die sooner than later if they don't make the changes. Yet, multiple studies 
have shown that in just two years after major heart surgery, 90% of those patients have not significantly altered their behavior. They still smear 100% butter on 100% lard biscuits, and they put 100% fructose corn syrup, maple syrup on top of those totally fat-filled pancakes that they love so dearly. And exercise, man, getting up out of bed and walking to the living room to watch today's show is about as much exercise as some of them will ever, ever get. Changing people's behavior is a very hard proposition. You and I don't like to change, even if that change is so good for us that that it will extend not only the quantity, but the quality of our lives. Change also comes hard for God's people. Uh, My experience has been, and you have to keep in mind that I've spent my whole life around God's people, being a preacher's son for a good bit of all my childhood and teenage years, and being a preacher and a pastor most of my adult life, all I've been around is God's people. And so you'd think I'd be somewhat knowledgeable about God's people. Let me tell you what I found about, about God's people. They don't change for anything much. I mean, it'd be better off, you know, I, I realize a lot of times we, we, we tend to think that churches are full of babies. They're not full of babies. Babies love getting changed. <laughs> but God's people, <laughs> God's people are the least willing to change. And as I have told this church many times over the past several years, all you have to do is take a trip up 29 between here and the perimeter and you see what happens to churches that don't. It is the reason, the foundational reason, why we have made some of the hard decisions, some of which have worked and some of which have not, during the time that I've been here, and some decisions you've made before I ever even came. Change is difficult. Israel was at a crossroads, and God was saying to Israel through Jeremiah, there are going to be some changes made. I am making you a new deal. And in this passage of Scripture, he gives us four of the aspects of this new deal that God is offering Israel. You don't think about God offering something new. But here we have, in Scripture no less, God offering something new. Now, Jeremiah highlights some of the aspects of the changes that God is making. First of all, it involves a new level of responsibility, a new level of responsibility. Verse 29, in those days, people will no longer say the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. It was a little uh, proverb. And what it meant was that the, the, the earlier generations have sinned, but the later generations are paying for it. It was a way of shirking responsibility. It was a way of, of saying, it's not our fault what is going on. God said there will come a, a, a time that in this new deal, that there will be a new level of responsibility. People won't be able to blame other people for their own sins, but he, he brings out the premise of individual responsibility. He says instead, verse 30, everyone will die for his or her own sin. 
whoever eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on edge. There will be a new level of responsibility. Don't we need a new level of responsibility in our country today, in our churches today, where we accept responsibility for the things that are happening instead of blaming somebody else for it? It's so hard. You and I all know people who just can't say the words, I was wrong. In this new deal, not only will there be a new level of responsibility, but there will be a new covenant God says it will be written on the heart. Verse 31, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. A covenant is like an agreement between God and human beings, between God and his people. I'll make a new agreement or a covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It won't be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Where did God write that covenant? He wrote it on tablets of stone. God says, I'm not going to do that again. Instead, this time, I, verse 33, he says, uh, he says, I will write my law in their minds and in their, on their hearts. That's a lot more personal. God writes something in your heart or He could write it on a stone tablet or a sheet of paper. If he writes it on a sheet of paper, you could leave it at home. Or when you leave here, like a lot of Bibles we get Sunday in and Sunday out, you could leave it up here on the pew. We can call you. But if he writes it in your heart, if he writes it in my heart, it's difficult to get away from. I carry it with me. You carry it with you. He says, I will write a new law in your mind and on your hearts, you will carry it with you. It's part of the new deal. Number three, in this new deal God is offering, not only is there a new level of responsibility and a covenant written on the heart instead of on stone tablets, but third, there is a new intimacy with God himself. He says this in the latter part of verse 33, not only will I put my law in their hearts, but he says, I will be their God and they will be my people. I will be their God and they will be my people. You see, there's a difference between saying Israel's God or America's God on one hand and saying, my God, on the other. Do you feel how, per- how much more personal that is? He's my God. He's your God. He's an intimate, personal God. He knows you. He knows your name. He knows the name that you wish you would have had. He knows the internal parts of your heart. He knows the nasty parts. He knows the joyous parts. He knows the clean parts. He knows the parts that nobody else knows, or at least you don't want them to know. He says, I will be their God, and they will be my people. God says to you, you're mine. I'm yours. We're better than best buds. This new deal offers a new intimacy. And number four, it offers a new, it provides a new offer of forgiveness. 
He says in verse 34, he said, No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. They'll all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And here's how they'll know it. He says, For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. Every one of us, if we were honest... There are some things we want people to remember about us, and there are some things we want people to forget about us. And God is saying, I will remember you. I will remember the good things about you. I will remember the relationship I have with you. But what I will forget is, I will forget and forgive your sins and remember them no more. Some people contend that that's not possible for God to do. Let me tell you something. There is nothing impossible with God. It is possible for an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise, everywhere present God to forget what you did. It's possible because he's God. How does he do it? I don't know how he does it. I don't know how he does it, but I know this, that the psalmist says that God, when we enter a relationship with him, he separates our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. There is no distance farther than the east from the west. It's a new deal. Before Miss Margaret Alford passed away and when she was still in good health, I would drop by occasionally to see her. Uh, along with the fact that it was my responsibility as a pastor to visit people like her, uh, I had a selfish reason for visiting Miss Margaret Alford. I highly respected her. And so she was one of those people who I would visit and sit and let the wisdom just drip from her lips onto my heart. One day as I sat and I was talking with her, I asked her, I said, Miss, uh, Miss Margaret, did I call her Mildred? Miss Margaret, Margaret Alfred, Miss Margaret, you've lived a long time. You've seen a lot of things. She said, yes, I have. I said, Miss Margaret, who was the, in your opinion, was the greatest president that you ever experienced in your lifetime? She said, well, not everybody would agree with me on this, but she said, in my opinion, The greatest president in my lifetime was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I said, why is that? I said, why is that? I said, why is that? She said, because he took us when we had no hope and he led the nation and we trusted him and he carried us to the point of hope. She said, no other president in my lifetime has been able to to do that. How many of you were alive when Roosevelt was president? Raise your hand. Anybody? A few. I would imagine that most of you were children whenever he was president. Would that be fair? Yeah. I was a child myself at that time. If you remember... Roosevelt ran for president promising a new deal for the American people. And he communicated his vision in a very, what was for his time, a very innovative and creative way. He conducted fireside chats by radio. It was a new technology, 
No president had ever done it before. And in the depths of depression, when people were getting up and they'd go to either withdraw money from their bank or deposit, deposit money into the bank, there was one particular day that, that anybody who went to the bank saw that there was a closed sign on the door of every single bank. The government had shut down the banks. And Roosevelt had the first of his fireside chats. And sociologists tell us that there were literally millions of Americans that sat by those old-timey wooden radios to hear the static-filled address of the President of the United States. And he asked the American people, when you get up in the morning, go, if you have money, deposit it. And trust us to make this right. And amazingly, literally, it is amazing. People got up the next day and they went to the banks and they transacted business in their banks. And the reason is there was something about those fireside chats. They trusted this man because there was an intimacy about sitting beside the fireplace, even if it was through the speakers of an old-timey radio. There was something about listening to a, a, a man, a person, by the fireplace that invoked trust. And when they acted upon what he said, they found that he was trustworthy. Jeremiah says, God's offering you a new deal. It's not like the old deal on tablets of stone. He's writing it on your heart. He says, I want to be your personal God. And I want you to know that I'm here for you. And you can trust me. And no matter what you're going through in life, if you'll place your trust in me, deposit your trust in me, I will see you through the darkest of days. How many of you are already old enough that you know that that is the truth? It's a pretty good deal. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, We thank you, Lord, for caring for us so much that you even, from time to time, will change up things to let us know how much we mean to you. Lord, as we enter this invitation time, Lord, you're offering somebody the opportunity to receive you as their Savior and their Lord. There are others of us, Lord, who already know you, but... The relationship has gotten a little cold, not because of anything on your part, but because of us. And Lord, maybe we need to come and refresh the hot coals of that fireside chat with our God. Lord, help us to make the right decisions tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.